We'll make your way to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 7. Hope you're having a good week and have a good day planned ahead. We're going to be in Mark, chapter 7, looking in verses 14 through 23 this morning. Uh, This passage is an extension of what we looked at last week in Jesus' teaching uh, concerning the ceremonial hand washing uh, that dealt with the tradition of the elders. It most likely took place or began in the synagogue at at Capernaum. Uh, The tradition of washing believed, just in our minds in the context of what's happening, uh, the tradition of washing believed that if you ate with unclean hands, if you ate out of an unclean vessel or pot, Even if you sat on an unclean cushion, or if you came from the marketplace and you did not bathe yourself or wash yourself, then you would therefore defile yourself and make yourself unclean. Uh, In this instance, the Jewish individuals would need to go and offer sacrifice if they did any of the things that were outside of that tradition. And that way they could go and they could worship in the temple. They could go and worship in the synagogue. And the issue was launched because as Jesus is in the synagogue and some sort of food is happening, um, the Pharisees and the scribes, which are the Jewish religious leaders, noticed that Jesus' disciples were eating with unclean hands. And so their understanding is either Jesus had not taught the tradition to them, or he was definitely, but he's definitely not enforcing it. And so last week we dealt with Jesus bringing out priorities we are to have in life and how the Pharisees and scribes had misplaced priorities, that we are to have a priority of family, that we are to have a priority of the Word of God, and we are to have a priority of God being the utmost priority in our life. And today, Jesus is going to come out of that teaching, and he's going to put it on a whole nother level. The bulk of the passage that we're going to look at this morning is actually a teaching done in private as Jesus would leave the synagogue and they would go to the home, we're told that in verse 17, they entered the house and left the people. It's most likely Peter's house. That seems to be kind of the home base where Jesus would go to and take his disciples. Uh, what we're going to see this morning is through Jesus' teaching is that all the stuff that they just went through, it's all a matter of the heart. And Jesus is going to bring this out in the passage. So let's begin reading verse 14 and we're going to work our way through verse 23. And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There's nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And we had entered the house and left the people. His disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. Verse 20, and he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. From within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. First thing I want us to deal with, uh, if you notice, you may or may not have noticed, is the omission of verse 16. 
If you look at the end of verse 15, it goes immediately into verse 17. It's not a typo in your, in your scriptures. At the end of verse 15, there should be some sort of notation or citation. It's a, uh, either going to be a letter or some sort of number. I read from the English Standard Version. And so at the end of verse 15, there is a number, which then takes me to the bottom of the page. So the bottom of your Bible. Of course, if you're reading off of a tablet or a phone, you may not find that. What you're going to do if you take that notation and go to the bottom of the page, you'll see that verse 16 is down there. And verse 16 contains the words, if anyone has ears, let him hear. Now the reason for this omission, and there's several places in Scripture where there are omissions of certain verses, is because this verse is not found in the earliest recordings of Mark that we have available to look at. And so at some point in time in history, someone inserted it. Now, it's not something that Jesus did not ever say. He said it numerous other times after his teachings. And so verse 16 does help us understand a little bit more verse 14 and 15, that verses 14 and 15 are actually the closing comments of what Jesus just taught in the synagogue. And so someone inserted verse 16 in order to give that understanding, but it's omitted in most Bibles because it's not in the earliest translations or earliest things. Now, most of us probably know about subtitles. So above verse 14, there's a subtitle which typically introduces a new section of Scripture. But we have to keep in mind when it comes to the original translation, which would be the Greek and the New Testament, the writers didn't put subtitles in there. They did not put verses. They did not put chapters. That is for us to be able to make a reference to a particular verse or passage so we can find it easily. But Jesus begins ending this teaching lesson in verse 14 by saying, hear me, all of you. And what, what he's doing in this moment is he's wrapping this up. It's like this is the concluding statement. He's telling them you need to listen carefully. You need to be diligent about understanding and hearing what I'm getting ready to tell you. It would be kind of like uh, my, my wife's a teacher, and so when she has to get her class's attention, she tends to say, class, class, and then they Say, yes, yes, and so she has their attention. She's calling them to listen, to hear her. It's like what parents do when we try to get our kids' attention. We sometimes have to raise our voice or we snap our finger. You may smack them. I don't know what you do in your house to get their attention. But, you know, this is what Jesus is doing. He's calling people's attention. Now, since Jesus has just dismantled the tradition of the elders concerning the ceremonial washings that they held, again, we looked at that last week. He's now going to be driving home the point here in verse 15. The point that Jesus is making here is that there is nothing which enters the body. In this case, because of the context of what Jesus just taught on, he's referring to food. He says there's nothing which enters the body which makes a person defiled. The word defiled means impure. It means unclean, or in, in the context of the Jews, ceremonially and ritually, ritualistically or ritually impure. Jesus points out it's not what goes in, it's what comes out. That's the problem. And what comes out actually reveals if a heart is defiled, if it's impure, if it's unclean. Now, because we're all using information, as you can see behind me, this teaching is also found in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 15. And Matthew, after Jesus makes this teaching at the end, Matthew has a little more information to add in chapter 15, verses 12 through 14. And this is what Matthew was led to write by the Spirit. 
It says, Then the disciples came and said to him, Do you not know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? And he answered, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into, into a pit. Now Matthew's insertion into this teaching at the end is letting us know that the disciples are starting to grasp that Jesus is not really a big fan of the Pharisees. He sees them as individuals who are leading God's people astray and that they are in fact spiritually blind and they're making God's people spiritually blind. They're passing down their traditions instead of hanging to the word of God, which Jesus pointed out from the prophet Isaiah as we looked at last week. And he says that because they're leading the blind because they are blind, he uses that metaphor of rooting them up, is that he's saying they don't belong to God. They're not actually God's people. And so in the end, God is going to root them up, which is speaking of the judgment that's going to fall upon them. He's telling his disciples, these religious leaders that people hold so high, they're actually numb to the, thing, thing, numb to the things of God, And they can't understand the word of God, so therefore they can't truly teach God's word to God's people. Now, returning back here to Mark, we see that Jesus and his disciples, verse 17, they leave and they head to a home where a more engaging teaching moment begins to take place with only Jesus and disciples. And though verse 17 says it was the disciples that asked Jesus, when we go to Matthew's account, again, Matthew chapter 15, we see, in fact, it was Peter who brought the question to Jesus. And what we see throughout the Gospels is Peter tends to be the spokesperson for all 12 of the disciples. He, he likes to speak up sometimes irrationally, but he brings this question to Jesus, and it brings a pretty harsh question back. If you look there in verse uh, 18, and he said to them, then are you also without understanding? And that's actually a nicer way to put it than what the Greek actually implies. The New International Version actually lays it out a little bit better, where he asks, are you so dull? The Greek means, are, are you so foolish? So Peter and the disciples ask this question, and Jesus' response, are you foolish? Are you witless? Are you without any sense? Now, I don't know about you, but, you know, I've done classes before and taken classes. And if I ever asked a question to the teacher wanting clarity, that's what disciples want. They wanted clarity. Can you imagine asking a question to a teacher about a lesson they are teaching for clarity and their response to you is, are you stupid? Are you an idiot? Now, parents... Let's say your kids came home from school, and they asked a question to their teacher, wanting clarity on the lesson, and the teacher responded to your kids, are you an idiot? How would you respond? I'd be making a phone call, right? But Jesus is really trying to awaken his disciples. The reason this harsh question is given back to them is because the disciples had been with him for some time now, and yet they're still failing to grasp the spiritual truth that Jesus is laying before them. They're they're almost just like the Pharisees and the scribes. But it's also nice to know for us that Jesus does go on to give clarity. He does go on to say what he meant, that we we could be walking with Christ. And with God for years upon years, we could have been in his word 
And there's still going to be some things we, we aren't going to understand. And we can ask God. He tells us to ask and to seek and to knock for that spiritual truth and that spiritual discernment. Because in reality, we are without understanding. We are foolish on the matter. I wouldn't say we're idiots, but we're foolish on the matter. And so Jesus is trying to waken, up, waken them up, and he begins to elaborate First, by reacting by what he said back in the synagogue there in verse 15. He reiterated, reiterates it, but now he does it in the form of a question. I'm sorry, verse 15. And the subject goes from, in referring to food, the, the Jewish people, see, they had these dietary restrictions which God gave them. You can look them up in Leviticus chapter 11 and Deuteronomy chapter 14. And you can read those for your enjoyment. And and so this is where the disciples are hung up, is that they know these dietary restrictions that actually came from God. These were not the tradition of the elders. These were commands that God had given his people. These were instructions on what they could or could not eat. And the purpose of the dietary restrictions, if you want to go and read uh, those, those passages, there was a purpose behind it. And the purpose was God was setting his people in the Old Testament apart. He was calling them to be holy. He was calling them to be different. As all the other nations who worshipped idols ate of these particular foods, God's saying, I want you to be separate from them. I want people to see the way you live your life, the way you handle your bodies is different. It's unique because you belong to me. And so he says, you are to be holy because I'm holy. And really the dietary restrictions were coming down to a place of trust. And here in Mark, Jesus is saying, you know what? Food was never the problem because food doesn't go to the heart. Food goes to the stomach. It's digested and it's released from the body. That's what Jesus is saying there in verse 19 when he says it's expelled. Simplest terms, he's saying, you know, when you eat food, it goes in the body, it gives you nutrition, and then you go to the bathroom. That word expelled in the Greek means it goes to the latrine. It goes in the sewer. He's pointing out to God's people that God now is going to separate you and make you holy in a different way. And it's going to have nothing to do with food. It's going to have everything to do with what I'm going to do for you by dying for your sins and rising again. So then when you put your faith in Christ alone, you're then set apart by God. And you're made holy because you're covered and the complete righteousness of Christ. This is where Jesus is trying to lead his disciples to get to. To understand that God's going to set you apart in a completely different way because of him. At the end of verse 19, Mark is led to give another insert. He did this earlier when he gave us the background about the ceremonial washing and the tradition of the elders we looked at last week. And he says that thus he declared all foods clean. Now, how did Mark come to this conclusion? Well, obviously the Holy Spirit came upon him, but if you weren't here last week, the Gospel of Mark was dictated to a man named John Mark uh, by Peter, the apostle. And, And so John Mark is writing this out, and Peter came to this conclusion as well because Peter had an experience with it in the book of Acts. If you look in Acts chapter 10, Peter is up on top of the house. He's waiting for supper. He's, he's hungry, and he falls into this deep trance where he receives a vision 
Of all the animals that God has created, God is now deeming clean. And so Peter sees all these animals that were deemed unclean begin coming down from heaven, and he hears a voice from heaven telling him, kill and eat it, Peter. To which Peter responds, no way. I'm not touching that. Because let's keep in mind, Peter's a Jew. And so Peter is yet to understand what Jesus is teaching here in the Gospel of Mark chapter 7. And, and, and he eventually, obviously, he submits and he trusts God. And so he gets this understanding that now what Jesus Christ has done for us, God has deemed everything clean because God has created everything. And so he gives this, this little insertion here in verse 19. But like I said, Peter was here in this teaching but he didn't get it until Acts 10 after Jesus already ascended into heaven. And so it's a nice little comfort for us that, you know, sometimes we can hear our lessons. Sometimes we can be in a Bible study or hear a message and we, we, we kind of get it. But then we get this opportunity later in life to see if we actually did get it, to put it in practice. And this is what Peter got to do later in Acts. What brings us back to Jesus' teaching points out, it's, it's not what goes in through the mouth of a person, but what comes out in actions and thoughts from a person, which reveals if they're truly defiled or evil. That word evil means wicked or sinful. So what Jesus is telling us is it's a matter of the heart. Now we touched on the heart a little bit last week, but since this is the bulk of the teaching here about a heart of a man or a heart of an individual, we need to understand biblically what heart is in Scripture. When you see heart in Scripture, it's not referring to an organ that pumps blood through the body. When you see heart, it's not referring to an emotion. The heart in Scripture is the part of the individual that makes the decisions. And we might think, because our world tells us that, well, that's actually our brain. That's our mind that makes us make decisions and allows words to come out of the mouth. But God reveals it's not the mind, it's the heart. It's the biblical or spiritual heart. The heart in Scripture navigates the mind. The heart speaks of the will and the personality of an individual. And we might understand this in this context when we've heard it or we've said it. We, we say, oh, man, they've got a good heart. We're not saying they've got a good organ that's pumping blood, are we? We're talking about their character. We're talking about their personality. We're talking about what they do, their actions and their decisions and their words. So the Bible points out that the heart is what makes people do what they do. And why they do what they do. This is what Paul points out in Romans chapter 7. It's one of my favorite passages of Paul because, you know, he's commissioned to write the majority of the New Testament. But in chapter 7, Paul brings out his heart issue. He says, I do the things I don't want to do, the things that I absolutely hate, and the things I, I don't or do want to do, I don't do. What Paul is revealing in Romans 7 is that he, too, has a heart issue, just like we all do. Because of the sinful nature which impacts the heart. Paul was saved by faith, but he still wrestled with the matters of the heart. And so the heart is so important because it is through the heart which one relates to God. In Romans chapter 10, we're, we're told that we have to believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead. 
In Mark and Matthew, we're told the greatest commandment is that we are to love the Lord your God with all your heart. Without the heart's involvement in our relationship with God, we are only putting on an act like the Pharisees, which Jesus called hypocrites. They're actors. Jesus is saying in the simplest terms here, look, food has no relationship on your impact with God, but it's your heart and who you truly are as a person inside. It's because of this, the things which make a person unclean or evil or wicked are sinful all originate from the heart of an individual. It is our spiritual heart which controls our conduct. It controls our words. It controls our thoughts. And so the lesson is, if the heart's bad, then the conduct's going to be bad. The action's going to be bad. The words are going to be bad. The thoughts are going to be bad. They're going to be evil. They're going to be sinful. So the big understanding is we need to have, is when we look out at the world and we watch what's going on in the world as God's people, we have to understand This world has a heart issue. They have a heart problem. This is why they make the decisions they do. And so when we come and we open the word of God, God isn't just trying to speak to our ears and our our minds. He's he's aiming for the heart. Because he knows how important it is. At this point in time, Jesus begins to lay out a list beginning in verse 21. This isn't the only list that we find in Scripture. You'll find another one in Galatians chapter 5, uh, before the fruit of the Spirit, which Paul was led to write, are the works of the flesh. There's another list in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Mark's list is more extensive than Matthew's list. Matthew has six. Mark has 12. So we should understand what these words mean as Jesus brings them out. All 12 are grounded in evil thoughts there in verse 21. And from the evil thoughts of the heart... These manifest themselves through the individual. So sexual immorality is the first one. could also be read as fornication. And it consists primarily of any sexual act outside of marriage. It contains the meaning of prostitution and homosexuality. Theft is probably self-explanatory. It's taking something which does not belong to us something that we do not own. Murder, again, pretty self-explanatory. Yet if we return back to the Gospel of Matthew, we would see that Jesus even then was revealing that murder stems from the heart. And Jesus points out that if we have angry intention towards another individual, that's just the same as committing murder. Adultery is similar to sexual immorality, but usually implies the act of an individual who is married, but having sex with another one outside of the marriage. Coveting is greedy ambitions. Wickedness refers to sinful actions or malice of the heart. Deceit is the practice of being dishonest. Sensuality implies self-indulgence and lewdness. Envy points to jealousy. Slander to profanity. Pride is speaking of arrogance or self-righteousness, believing that we're a better person than someone else by what we do or what we have. That's pride. 
arrogance, self-righteousness, foolishness. Foolishness is speaking of poor judgment or an individual who lacks moral judgment and character. It carries the meaning of having a wrong attitude towards God and the things of God. Foolishness. This list, Jesus says, is what reveals what is actually in the heart of an individual. Because it manifests itself from their heart. You see it in their actions. You see it in their thoughts. You hear it in their words. And that is what makes an individual defiled, unclean. Sinful, wicked, evil. And so these are markers that we can look for in ourselves and look for in other people, not to judge other people, but just so that we can see the struggle of the heart that they're having. Some of you guys may be sitting here and thinking, you know, we haven't even had one point come up on the screen yet. How long is the sermon going to be today? There's only one main point today. Here it is. Our relationship with God and our relationship with people is all about the heart. It is our heart which impacts our relationship with God. And we can do all the right things. We can do all the things we believe we should be doing and still do them with the wrong intentions if the heart's not involved in it. For example, I can preach and teach two to three times a week. But if I don't do it with love and with the heart, if I don't do it with the idea that I want to love you with the word of God, and I want to love the bride of Christ, the church, through the word of God, and I want to equip God's people for ministry, then I'm just a noisy symbol. If I go through prepping and studying and preparing for sermons or Bible studies, but I'm not doing it from the heart, then the Bible tells me I'm doing nothing, and I am nothing. As God's people, we were commanded to keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. That's Proverbs 4.23. And I know I spoke on it last week, but this is what it means. As God's people, we are to guard and imprison our hearts in the word of God. The Bible says concerning God's word, to keep them within your heart, for they are life to those who find them and healing to all their flesh. The Bible tells us in Matthew chapter 6, our heart contains what we treasure, and we are therefore to treasure the things that are eternal. In Matthew chapter 5, we're told, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. The pure in heart calls for lives of pure motives and lives that are, which are not divided, meaning our hearts aren't to be attached to this world, but we're to be attaching our heart to God and to the things of God and to the word of God. And there's a great promise we find concerning the heart. If you look at that list and you say, oh man, I got some stuff going on in my heart because some of these things in this list have manifested in my life. If you turn back to the book of Psalms, it's written by King David, in particular, Psalm chapter 51. If you want to go there, go there with me. Psalm 51 is written by King David. And it's written in a period of time where King David had just committed adultery with Bathsheba. And so God sent the prophet Nathan to King David to call him out about this. And so here's the thing. 
If you remember, adultery is on our list in Mark chapter 7. Well, after David committed adultery, it also led David to covet. And he stole. He stole another man's wife. And then he plotted, he made a plan to have him murdered on battle. That's three more from the list. He acted in foolishness, which was poor judgment. There's another one on the list. It's a total of five. David committed sexual immorality, which led to his evil actions and deceit. There's three more, making a total of eight. Then David exhibited pride, believing that he could get away with it. He could just hide it. That makes nine of 12 from the list in Mark chapter 7 that David committed. And yet the Bible says that David was a man after God's own heart. And God established the covenant to David that God's only son, Jesus, would come from his family. So even though he committed these things on the list, David churns in Psalm 51 after he's come to this conviction. He cries out for mercy. That's how the psalm begins. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sins. Verse 3, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. So God sent the prophet Nathan to David. And David eventually becomes convicted. And then David repents. And God redeems. And David's cry, jump with me to verse 10. He understood that he had sinned against God, even though other people were impacted. And he understood that God has disciplined him because God taught him his wisdom, God's wisdom in the secret heart, says that in verse 6. And he makes his plea in verse 10 through 12. He says, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. You know what David understood? He had a heart problem. And so he comes before the creator of the heavens and the earth knowing that only he can fix the problem. Create in me, God, a pure and clean heart. And he says to give me a steadfast spirit, give me a heart that pursues after you and you alone. And he asked God to return to him the joy of your salvation. See, David understood he needed a change of heart, and God was the spiritual heart surgeon. David was disciplined under God's hand, convicted, he repented, he cried out to God to do what only God could do. Give me a clean heart, God. Give me a good one. Give me a pure heart. Give me a heart that's not divided anymore. Give me a steadfast heart to pursue after you. So I once again can have the joy of the salvation you've given me. But it all started from the heart. I bring this up because you may have looked at that list there in Mark chapter 7 and realized you're guilty of some of those things. 
It's because those things are in your heart. And only God can remove them and replace them with purity and holiness. Only God can give you a clean heart. And I say it's not to point the finger because I look at that list and I say, oh, I'm, I'm guilty. There's things on that list I am guilty. And they're my heart. And you know what I try to do? I try to autocorrect it. I'm just going to change some habits. I'm going to just change some actions. But the, the thing, it's the heart. You know that revealed? When we say, well, I'll just, I'm just going to stop doing that. I'm going to start doing this. It reveals our heart once again. It reveals pride. Arrogance. Self-righteousness. We can do this without God. See, it's a matter of our heart. Only God can change the heart because that's the work God does. He is a spiritual heart surgeon. It's possible there are some here today who do not have a heart that is right with God in the first place. Because you've yet to believe in your heart that God raised Jesus Christ from the dead. And so therefore you can't love God with all of your heart. But that can change today. By finding forgiveness for your sins before God through Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. And God promises he will give you eternal life. He'll forgive you of your sins and he'll call you his child. And this is the most important heart surgery you need. And God does it very simply. It begins by admitting to God that you're a sinner. You got a heart problem. And believing that God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for your sins, to take your punishment. And when you believe that in your heart, the Bible says you are to confess Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, confess your need for forgiveness, and God will give you eternal life. If you're here and you've yet to begin a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, I'm going to be standing here at this time of invitation, and I'm going to ask you to just come down. You can just sit in the front row. We'll pray with you, and we'll celebrate with you. But maybe you're here, and you're looking at that list, and you're saying, okay, now I know what the problem is. It's my heart. And so maybe you just need to come to the altar and kneel before God and say, God created me a clean heart. But this is our time of response I want to pray over us, and I'm going to ask Jackson to come up and lead us. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you you care about everything in our life. You, you care about the things we aren't even aware of. And you know our heart. Give us a heart that seeks after you, that longs to do your will and to be in your presence. I pray for this church. I pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ. Lord, you know that we struggle with things. You know we wrestle. We can relate to Paul's words. Help us understand what needs to change in our heart. And Lord, if there's anyone here this morning that needs to begin a relationship with you through Jesus Christ, to find the forgiveness of their sins and the gift of eternal life, I pray your spirit would get a hold of their heart and you would bring them down the aisle. And today would be the day of their salvation. Continue to be glorified in this time of response, in this time of invitation. Praise on the name of Jesus. Amen.